This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. Please help me in welcoming Professor Marianne Case, who is the Arnold I. Shore Professor of Law here at the University of Chicago. Um, while her diverse research interests include German contract law and the First Amendment, her scholarship to date has concentrated on the regulation of sex, gender, and sexuality, and on the early history of feminism. Today she will be discussing the landmark case Griswold v. Connecticut on its 50th anniversary. for having me here. Let me, first of all, as the convener of the workshop on regulating family sex and gender, put in an extra plug, not only for today's workshop by Liz Supper, contracting religion may not be the sexiest of titles. I keep telling her she should have called it zombie Catholic hospitals because that is in fact what she is discussing, the way in which Catholic hospitals either on merger or on sale place restrictions that uh, compliance be in accordance with uh, Catholic guidelines. I've already uh, notified not only uh, LSRJ, but all the students for Life and the Thomas More Society, they might be interested. I hope that's all the relevant groups. Uh, I want to just generally put in a plug for the workshop, which is open not just to the small number of students taking it for credit, but to any student in any week that's of interest to them. And also put in a plug for the December 2nd workshop, uh, which will be by Chiara Bridges on class, race, and the reproducing body. So of interest to probably the uh, aforementioned groups, plus um, the plus Balsa and uh, who knows uh, who else. Um, so today uh, I'm talking on the occasion of the 50th uh, anniversary of Griswold, and I contemplated um, in um, nod to um, Justice Holmes calling this talk, uh, 50 years of Griswold is enough. Uh, as three generations of imbeciles uh, is enough, to which my um, UVA colleague, Ted White, used to always ask, enough for what? Um, and what 50 years of Griswold has obviously not been enough for is for Griswold to be settled law. Now, that's something uh, I have been um, uh, unfortunately aware of for most of my career. When I was a litigator at Paul Weiss, um, colleagues of mine were interviewing in the Reagan Justice Department. Um, and uh, the George W. Bush, uh, I'm sorry, the George Bush Senior Justice Department. And instead of being asked, as we would have thought, um, you know, what do you think of Roe v. Wade? With I think it's a fine decision being disqualified. They were instead being asked about Griswold versus Connecticut. Um, and any view that Griswold was unequivocally correctly decided, or even arguably correctly decided, uh, would mark them as what was uh, in the parlance then, and I still think now, uh, nominated a squish. That is to say, not a reliable uh, conservative legal thinker uh, of the sort the, ju the Reagan Justice Department uh, was looking for. I'm not going to be talking about Griswold's uh, being endangered in that sense today, but I'm going to talk about Griswold in light of two um, more recent cases that take up separate lines of Griswold. And that's Obergefell uh, together with Windsor, the same-sex marriage cases on one hand, and Hobby Lobby uh, together with the half dozen or more um, follow-on cases about the ACA contraception mandate uh, that the court uh, just accepted certain last week. And uh, to try and get through the you know, more general jurisprudential remarks quickly enough so as to say something about these cases that the court has taken cert on uh, more specifically uh, at the end. But 
very briefly, for those of you who haven't taken the relevant constitutional law courses, Griswold was, of course, a case saying that it would be unconstitutional to criminalize the use of contraception by married couples. Um, and the two parts of that opinion, the part about contraception, and I will argue about sex, um, and the part about marriage, have uh, were you know disaggregated and then have descended to us in two lines of cases, one Hobby Lobby on the one hand and uh, Obergefell uh, on the other. So very briefly, for you know, again, those of you who studied the relevant courses will be familiar with uh, these cases. Um, Griswold is a follow-on to a case called Poe v. Ullman, uh, where uh, Justice Harlan wrote what was then a dissent, which became a concurrence uh, in Griswold. Um, after Griswold, the right was extended uh, to single people uh, in Eisenstadt with the uh, following uh, oft-quoted lines. Uh, it's true that the right in Griswold, the right of privacy in question, uh, inhered in the marital relationship, yet the marital couple is not an independent entity with a mind and heart of its own, but an associated of two individuals, each with a separate intellectual uh, and emotional makeup. The right of privacy means anything. It is the right of the individual, married or single, to be free from unwarranted governmental intrusion into matters so fundamentally affecting a person as the decision whether to bear or beget a child. Uh, the right to contraception was then extended to minors in Caribbean uh, population services. Uh, but I want to focus on this notion uh, that uh, Griswold is about the decision whether to bear or uh, beget a child. I have been saying since the early 1990s in a piece on gay rights I wrote for the University of Virginia Law Review um, that if you do what Justice Scalia says should be done in substantive due process cases, that is to say, look at the narrowest history and tradition uh, that is at issue uh, in any given case. So in a subsequent case, he said, it's not about the rights of fathers or even unwed fathers, but about adulterous unwed fathers in the face of the opposition of uh, marriage family to have um, access to their uh, adulterous uh, offspring. So if one were to do that, I think that the only way to line up Griswold, Eisenstadt, Carey, um, and a case called Stanley um, v. Um, Georgia, which is about access to uh, obscene material, uh, obscene material that couldn't be distributed, but if you have it in the privacy of your home and are jerking off to it, you're protected from criminal prosecution. Uh, and I use the term jerking off because I'm going to try, since this is a podcast, uh, of reading uh, the four-letter word beginning with F, which I think that these cases amount to a right to, if you're just <laughs> applying the Scalia methodology. Uh, the narrowest history and tradition is not about the choice to bear or beget a child. After all, a married couple can avoid bearing and begetting a child simply by uh, refraining from uh, engaging in uh, vaginal intercourse, uh, protected or unprotected, if they can't get access to contraception. Um, you know, um, therefore, one would think that the next logical case in this line is, of course, Bowers v. Hardwick. Um, and that's what Larry Tribe, who argued Bowers, uh, actually thought. Uh, that the right to privacy is about the right to make private, intimate decisions, not necessarily in the context of a relationship, whether marital or quasi-marital, or uh, even beyond the one-night stand. Bowers, the Hartford was about a one-night stand. Um, yeah, um, but that didn't happen, right? And one of the reasons it didn't happen was that the, or one of the things the court said when it said it wasn't happening 
uh, was that there's no relation uh, between gay people and family, between homosexual relations uh, and family. And of course, in the era of same-sex marriage, that is absolutely uh, no longer the case. Uh, gay people and family are thought of very closely together, but uh, you will notice that in both Obergefell and Windsor, you see the kind of folks that I wrote about in the 1990s. Who are the gay couples who win? They are couples, one of whose members is dead. So you can think about the wonderful relationship between the couple without getting hung up on all the potentially icky sex. Um, Windsor was a widow, and the fact that she was a widow was central to her claim. She was seeking for uh, exemption from state taxes. Obergefell was a widower, and that fact was central to his claim. All he was seeking was to be listed as a surviving spouse on his uh, husband's death certificate. Uh, so there is this sense that um, you know what I'm calling the right to have sex has unfortunately not been vindicated. And if we look at Obergefell, some of the romance of marriage that had disappeared in subsequent Supreme Court decisions, for example, uh, the abortion decision in which the question was, uh, do married women have to notify? It had previously been decided that they did not have to give their husband control rights, that they didn't even have to tell their husband that they were having an abortion. If you read what the court says about marriage in that opinion, it's really fairly negative. Marriage is, a, is not a safe space. It's a, it's a potentially a site of risk for women where they can be uh, battered and threatened and in fear. Um, but with um, Windsor and Obergefell, um, the romance of marriage is back. And I use the term romance advisedly. And even more, the nobility and dignity of marriage is back. Uh, both of these uh, include, and the sacredness of marriage. So uh, again, uh, I'll, I'll read a paragraph that I'm sure is familiar to all of you who've ever uh, studied uh, Griswold. Um, we deal with a right of privacy older than the Bill of Rights, older than our political parties, older than our school system. Marriages are coming together for better or for worse, hopefully enduring and intimate to the point of being sacred. It is an association that promotes a way of life, not causes, a harmony in living, not political faiths, the bilateral loyalty, not commercial or social projects. An association for as noble a purpose as any involved in our prior decisions. Now, I have to say, the thing that most surprised me about the Obergefell decision was that the um, paragraph in it that had my most wholehearted assent came from a footnote by Mr. Justice Thomas. Uh, the footnote was the following. Majority also suggests that marriage confers nobility on individuals. I am unsure what that means. People may choose to marry or not to marry. The decision to do so does not make one person more, quote, noble, unquote, than another. And the suggestion that Americans who choose to marry, choose not to marry, are inferior to those who decide to enter such relationships is specious. Now, I suspect Justice Thomas was not thinking about the unmarried, potentially cohabiting couple uh, in Eisenstadt or the one-night stand uh, in Bowers, but was maybe thinking of uh, people who uh, vow celibacy for, uh, for religious reasons, but I absolutely agree <laughs> with him, um, whatever he was thinking of, that the notion that marriage makes you noble um, is dangerous. Even more dangerous is a concept that we already see in uh, Griswold, which is the concept that uh, so the word dignity, well, the word dignify uh, also uh, is used. Um, 
where uh, Justice Douglas, in the um, majority opinion, uh, talks about uh, dignifying the rights in Pierce v. Society of Sisters um, and um, uh, blanking on the name, uh, you can teach German to your kids' case. Meyer v. Nebraska. Um, that, that those rights were dignified, and similarly, marriage and the rights of privacy within marriage has been dignified. That paradoxically puts a lot of control uh, in the hands of the state, uh, rather than no control uh, in, in the hands of the state if marriage is the thing, or if the state is the one who uh, dignifies marriage uh, in this way, and marriage provides dignity. Uh, I'll also note that um, you know, one of the things that people have commented on in the line of decisions from Colby Ullman on down <laughs> is that there was always someone outside the pale, right? So uh, in, uh, in Poe, it was, well, just because we are going to let married people use contraception doesn't mean that we can't prosecute um, fornication, for example, and then later on it became uh, gay people. And um, Obergefell is in line with this, and so suddenly the people outside the law, or at least outside dignity, nobility, and full citizenship, are the people Justice Thomas is sticking up for, those who do not, um, because they choose, uh, or because they cannot, um, because their marriage has failed, uh, to, to marry. Uh, and I want you to hold in, in, uh, in mind this idea of, uh, of insiders and outsiders, and that uh, although, as Justice Kennedy keeps reminding us, the, the, the circle keeps expanding of the people who have dignity and whose rights we uh, establish, uh, there does seem to be this tendency to reinscribe uh, somebody uh, as one down. So we can think of marriage as a status in two ways. Uh, it's a status just descriptively the way corporations are a status, uh, and it's a status in the sense of being one up. And it's that latter sense of marriage more than the former that I think has been uh, reinforced in the line uh, from, from Griswold now to Obergefell. Uh, now, one other um, line uh, of cases to be uh, focused on is the cases that um, highlight whether rights are merely negative rights. And so what Griswold says is you have the right to use contraceptives without being criminally punished. Uh, Obergefell is unusual in that it, as the dissent points out, um, to the extent that it is a substantive due process and not an equal protection decision, um, extends positive substantive due process rights. You have a right for the state to recognize your relationship. As a matter of equal protection, that makes perfect sense. If the state is in the business of providing uh, marriage licenses and uh, rights and benefits for marriages, then giving them to some couples and not to others needs to be justified, uh, especially if it's uh, as the ban on same-sex marriages, sex discriminatory um, discriminatory against uh, the historically disadvantaged group of gay people, uh, discriminatory with respect to a fundamental right such as marriage. But uh, Obergefell was, of course, not a substantive due process, uh, not an equal protection decision. It was more, or at least largely, uh, a substantive due process uh, decision, uh, not limited to the equal protection uh, component. Uh, but when positive rights to contraception and abortion were asserted, they lost, right? So uh, I'm sure you know the cases where uh, the court said with respect to uh, abortion rights that um, 
isn't required for government, even when it generally provides um, medical services to uh, to poor women, uh, that it provide uh, abortion services. Um, and there's a sense in which Hobby Lobby may be seen uh, as the descendant uh, of those cases, because there is the unfortunate tendency uh, to say, well, you know, you may have a right to use birth control, but no one is stopping you from using it. We're just saying you can't uh, get it with our money. Now, uh, our money um, is an interesting um, conception when we're talking about um, benefits uh, with respect to employers and their employees. The discussion of how all kinds of benefits, uh, and particularly those attached to marriage, uh, but also those attached more generally to healthcare, got associated with employment status is well beyond the scope of this uh, talk, but I will signal it uh, as potentially relevant. We'll also say, however, that the way in which the uh, marriage components uh, of Griswold and the uh, birth control component of Griswold have had different fates in the polity as well as in the courts is worthy of consideration when I say, you know, if you're Justice Scalia connecting the dots, what you should be seeing is a right to have sex. Um, and when um, people like Sandra Fluke started talking about their need for um, financial assistance with birth control and the injustice of excluding birth control from an otherwise comprehensive health services plan, people like Rush Limbaugh started describing her as a slut, started describing her as someone who just wanted to have uh, sex on the government dime. Uh, Huckabee uh, followed in that uh, line precisely. Uh, we don't need Uncle Sugar uh, to help us with our um, sexual uh, activities. And um, it saddens me that uh, what used to be uh, a um, fairly unified uh, movement for sexual liberation, or that could have been a unified unit, uh, movement for sexual liberation, has been siloized into here's the LGBT silo, here's the reproductive rights silo, and that's further subdivided into the sometimes not um, speaking groups of the abortion rights silo, uh, the access to contraception silo, uh, and the new reproductive technologies uh, silo. Uh, I have, you know, in the same way as I connect the dots similarly to Justice Scalia, I connect the dots similarly to uh, Josef Hatzinger, a.k.a. Benedict XVI, who says all of the, the pope, uh, who, uh, the ex-pope, uh, pope Emeritus, I think is what we're supposed to call him. Uh, seriously. Uh, these things really do have something in common. The, uh, the right of the individual, married or single, to uh, determine all of these things uh, about uh, his uh, or her uh, life. Another thing that uh, has Hobby Lobby as the descendant of Griswold versus Connecticut is that famously it was the Catholic lobby in Connecticut and it was the strength of Catholics as a voting group uh, in Connecticut that made Connecticut an outlier among states uh, for having contraception. And what's happened over time that many religion scholars, uh, including me, have written about is the way in which most, not all, 
all, Robbie George at Princeton is still saying we've got to resist uh, publicly uh, and public uh, rights for, for example, gay, gay couples. Uh, most proponents of conservative religious values, whether that be uh, against same-sex marriage, against gay rights more generally, uh, against uh, abortion, against contraception uh, more generally, or even against the new reproductive technologies even more generally, that is to say, Catholic Church is as composed, opposed to artificial means of conception, uh, e.g. in vitro fertilization, as it is to artificial means of contraception. Um, all of those groups are um, instead basically uh, engaging what, in what I've been calling elsewhere the new feudalism. Right? They are asserting not their... Um, well, they're, we would still, I'm sure, like to have the general law of the state uh, or the federal government in line with their views. The fallback position that they are uh, more uh, clearly and often asserting, having lost the former uh, debate, starting with uh, Griswold, uh, is to say, no, uh, what we need is our own space under our control. So let me now turn to the way in which that space is being um, controlled uh, by Hobby Lobby on the one hand and by the religious organizations, uh, Little Sisters of the Poor, uh, a conjuries of colleges, including Wheaton, Notre Dame. Uh, Notre Dame, uh, I don't think, was ready for CERT, but I'm going to uh, give you a, a paraphrase of a line from the Notre Dame um, earlier CERT brief because I think it uh, says a lot. Um, so just to recap where we are with the, with the contraception mandate, um, the uh, Affordable Care Act uh, said that uh, preventive health care was part of health care, uh, left it to regulation what constituted preventive health care. Regulation specified that contraception, including free access to all available forms of contraception, uh, was part of uh, preventive health care for women. Uh, and carved out, perhaps unwisely, an exemption for uh, churches. Um, I say perhaps unwisely because if you look at the history of um, protection for free exercise, uh, starting again with a case called Sherbert against Werner, which is about uh, unemployment insurance, uh, uh, the court is more likely to um, provide religious exemptions to uh, new groups when they have been provided to other groups in the past. Uh, in Sherbert versus Ferner, uh, the woman uh, who sought unemployment compensation couldn't work on Saturdays and couldn't for religion. And she said, and, and, and she could point to the statute that gave Sunday observers an unquestionable uh, right not to work on their day of rest. So, um, partly because of establishment clause issues, partly because of uh, potential issues of uh, fairness and equal protection, uh, if some religions get an exemption or some religious groups get an exemption, the argument becomes stronger. It also becomes stronger uh, in, or may become stronger on the theory that this is a system that can tolerate exemptions. Now, there comes a tipping point. It may be able to tolerate a few exemptions, but not a large number of exemptions, and that's something uh, to be considered. Um, Hobby Lobby gave um, a non-religious um, employer, in the sense that Hobby Lobby is not in any sense a religious corporation, and it was the corporation uh, that was the um, claimant in Hobby Lobby, uh, an exemption because of the beliefs of those uh, who controlled it. And that's part of what I mean when I uh, reference what I'm calling the new feudalism. 
Uh, the new feudalism for me is the notion that more and more, rather than less and less, our rights are a function of our hierarchical attachments uh, to our state, to our employer, to our family members, like our spouses or our parents. So that the follow-on case from Hobby Lobby that is in scare quotes my favorite is a legislator um, from blanking um, on the state, but a legislator who, um, together with his wife, have um, adult but under 26-year-old children who are under the Affordable Care Act now insurable on their parents' health insurance. And what he has said is, look, the relationship with my kids, to me, is like the relationship of Hobby Lobby's employees to it. Uh, because they are getting uh, insurance through me, I get to say that I don't want them to have contraception uh, because I oppose it and you can't use me uh, as a means of providing something uh, that I have uh, a religious objection to. Uh, this, uh, I, I've never before talked about, I've talked about this case in many contexts, but usually with law professors, most of whom are too young to have children in the relevant age group. I see that from the faces, the podcast will not reveal the faces, I see by the faces of uh, all you folks, many of whom may fall in the category of uh, insurable on your uh, parents' health insurance, uh, the dawning realization that your parents may get to decide exactly what kind of health access uh, based on their uh, beliefs. That case is still uh, in, uh, in litigation. Now, um, the cases that the court has just taken cert on um, do not involve uh, the opt-out um, that was at issue in Hobby Lobby because, as I understand it, and I haven't looked at the all seven or eight of the cert petitions and all of the uh, relevant parties in them, but uh, the overwhelming majority of the parties uh, up on cert this time are um, re exempt religious uh, organizations um, in the sense that no one is doubting that their um, objection to providing directly contraception or abortion services should, under the current regulations, be uh, honored. The question is only whether they um, can be obliged to fill out paperwork that says so, um, and whether uh, then their plan providers will then um, be compelled by the Affordable Care Act to provide the services that the organizations are not. And they are, again, in line with what I'm calling the new fields, asserting a really broad right that says, basically, we own these plans, these employees, these lists, and anything that uh, flows to our employees by virtue of their being our employees uh, is too disturbing to us um, not to get an exemption. Uh, under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Now, I should say that um, I am not a fan of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and never have been. I once again agree with Justice Scalia that always have agreed with him since the day it came down that Smith, uh, the uh, Employment Division uh, versus Smith, the case of the Affordable Care Act, I'm uh, sorry, that the uh, Religious Freedom Restoration Act was meant to um, limit and to, to, to the extent within Congress's power to reverse was correctly decided for the same reason Reynolds, the 19th century Mormon polygamy case, was correctly decided. And that's the sheer practical reason that there will be no law um, worth the name if any religious objector to any governmental practice can at any time uh, raise an objection that can only be countered by narrow tailoring to meet a compelling governmental interest. But 
That said, I was initially quite sympathetic um, to the claims by people like Little Sussers that they didn't need to fill out the form. I either radically misunderstood those claims or those claims have radically expanded uh, as a result of the, the litigation. My initial view is, you know, you don't want to sign a form, there's got to be a workaround for that. And I thought of the uh, correct analogy, or I thought then the correct analogy was something like uh, the long-standing practice of allowing Quakers to uh, affirm and not swear uh, because they had a religious objection to swearing. <coughs> this is something, uh, this is different from allowing Quakers not to um, bear arms uh, in service of the country. It's a, it's a yeah, in a sense, a technical workaround. But if that can produce a win-win solution, great. It does seem now that there is simply no win-win solution. That there, that, that what these organizations are saying is that their religious conscience will not be uh, at rest unless their employees don't get what the law gives them the right to. And that, I think, cannot possibly be uh, a workable solution. I'd be very interested to see what the Supreme Court does with it. I have, before anybody asks me in questions and answers, absolutely no prediction what the Supreme Court is going to do with it. Um, because it, it's possible that the Affordable Care Act, uh, in as interpreted by RIFRA, that is to say, RIFRA sort of metaphysically amending the Affordable Care Act and all other statutes, uh, may provide some sort of remedy, but it has to be a remedy short of uh, not giving the employees uh, their due. I'll stop there and open it up for questions, comments, expressions of outrage and puzzlements as uh, <laughs> fit. Anybody? Oh, yeah. So the Satanic Temple is currently uh, pursuing litigation in Missouri under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act to attempt to get their own uh, waiver of sorts um, for women who are seeking to get uh, abortion access without intervention. Um, what do you think of this kind of tactic to uh, throw the, the book back at the people who've written it? Um, I, first of all, the people who wrote the book were the Congress of the United States. And the fascinating thing about RIFRA, and again, I, I have always said RIFRA was a bad idea for reasons having nothing to do with contraception, abortion, sexual rights, anything like that. Again, for the reasons very clearly articulated by the Court of Reynolds, by Scalia and Smith, by the Ruth Bader Ginsburg dissent and Hobby Lobby. Um, it's limitless. So the people who, who gave us this were Congress and um, the conjuries of people not all on the political right or the religious barricades, uh, including the ACLU, uh, you know, what some people used to call wet liberals, uh, who thought, oh, religion is this sweet, fuzzy, nice thing, let's give it more. Um, but I will also say that the problem with the Satanic Temple cases is a little like the problem uh, with some of the people who suddenly discover that God requires them to smoke marijuana when they think that that will allow. And I'm not talking about Rastafarians, who have um, a historical basis for potentially claiming that. Uh, I'm talking about the kind of people that show up in the um, court's hypothetical signed prisoners, right? 
God requires me to have a steak dinner every night, um, accompanied by a caviar appetizer um, and champagne, notwithstanding that I'm a prisoner. I mean, there aren't such people, but I mean, I think it would be a very interesting and important test case if there were people who could plausibly claim a sincere religious belief along the lines that the Satanic Temple is arguing for. But given that the one thing every court is willing to test religion for is sincerity, um, and given that, as far as I can tell, what you have described is exactly right, this is a tactic, um, not a sincere expression of religious belief, um, I'm waiting for the right test case. Yeah. Follow up on that, though. Um, the indication in Hobby Lobby, the, the Supreme Court did seem to kind of indicate that it wasn't a court's place to question the sincerity of belief to a certain extent, or to the correctness of a sincerely held belief. And so I guess I'm, I'm curious, following up on that, if the, sa if the Satanic Temple can come up with somebody who can go into court and with a straight face and swear on a not Bible, <laughs> that they sincerely... That this is the sincerely held belief. That, that's what I was trying okay. to suggest to the first questioner. Okay. That is to say, but, but I think that merely swearing it is not going to be enough. Um, and you used another word that I'm um, now not remembering, but let me just say a little bit okay. about that. So, yeah, so sincerity is what matters, but it doesn't matter that it fits into a, a, a general worldview of any group. It could be your own personal sincere belief, which is one of the reasons why it leads to anarchy, right? So, uh, you know, I'm working on a piece I'm tentatively calling Kol Nidre uh, for the non-Jews in the room, even for some of the Jews in the room. I, I'm not a Jew, but I only recently learned this. Kol Nidre means all vows. And one of the things that um, Hobby Lobby and Riffra suggest is that any vow you take, uh, just you personally, between you and God, I swear I won't do X, now has the equal force of anything that a more systematic faith tradition calls upon people to do. I, my favorite, again, in scare quotes case along these lines is there was a um, Title VII uh, religious accommodation case involving um, a sincere religious opponent of abortion who swore a battle that until abortion uh, until Roe v. Wade was overturned, she would wear a button uh, with a dismembered fetus on it uh, to work, uh, to which the response of the court and her employer was, uh, okay, fine, we accept that, but you can cover up the button because it disturbs your coworkers, not just your coworkers who support abortion, but you know, they don't want to see a giant dismembered fetus every time they see you. Now, all that does is allow the next person to come up with a more strategic, better vow. But, and, and you may say, well, how is that any less of a tactic than uh, what the Satanic Temple is doing? But again, we have this notion of faith being something um, that requires sincerity and not behavior. It requires belief and not practice. Uh, again, um, shades off into discussions of what kind of secularism we have. Do we have a Protestant secularism that values faith over, over, over works, values faith over systematic commitments. But I'll just represent to you that um, someone with beliefs like that of the Satanic Temple, like that of the uh, would-be marijuana user, is going to be much more heavily scrutinized, both because of the eccentricity of those beliefs and the fortuitous um, benefits 
uh, from, uh, from those beliefs. Uh, more than some, so I mean, for example, when the, when the court allowed um, a, a RIFRA exemption for hallucinogens, it placed what one may see as an inordinate amount of weight on the fact that it was the kind of hallucinogen that could also make you nauseated and vomiting. So no one without a sincere religious belief would, you know, likely choose it as the thing God was requiring them to consume for for a religious high. So I, I mean. I mean, I guess the only the 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 question that I would have, and, and it may just be, you know, you don't know whether or you've said it now, is the answer is, um, it seems like if they're going to be consistent, then I can believe anything I want and say this is what I believe, and so but you have to believe, you have to basically you have to believe it. You do have to believe. Well, but I mean. You don't have to have any kind of evidence for it, though. I mean, in the Hobby Lobby case, in the Hobby Lobby case, there's a sincerely held belief that this is an abortifacient and science be damned kind of thing. Um, and so, I guess. But I mean, I'm, I'm curious what you see as the analogous relevant I'm not, I'm not belief sure. for the Satanic Temple. I'm, I'm not positive. Um, I guess the, the question that I have is do you just think that they're going to be more heavily scrutinized because we may have this? Protestant or, or religious secularism in that we have a, an idea of what a, a sincere belief should look like and so long as you fall into that faith tradition, we're okay with going along with it and we're going to scrutinize the people that I don't. mean, it, it is obviously descriptively easier for people whose uh, beliefs are um, part of a long-recognized uh, religious practice. But again, I think it's overdetermined. Uh, with respect to, to, you know, I mean, I have said that the, the, the right test case, and I'm, I'm looking for it, I've said, you know, if I were an OBGYN and also a religious believer, two counterfactuals, um, <laughs> I would apply the belief I, I, I do, in fact, have what I call feminist fundamentalism. That is to say, a deep... Uh, unshakable, unwavering commitment to the equality of the sexes and to the repudiation of fixed notions concerning the roles and abilities of males and females. Um, and say there are, just as uh, the OBGYNs who don't want to engage in new reproductive technologies at all, or the OBGYNs who don't want to assist lesbian couples have uh, asserted a religious objection, I would say I don't think um, people who are going to bring children, especially girl children, into a world in which they are subordinated, uh, should be assisted in having children. I think quiverful families, for example, um, should not be assisted in having children. And I have a sincere religious uh, objection to being part of their reproductive project. That seems to me, if there were someone uh, to make that assertion, um, easier to sustain than uh, again, as a purely contingent factual matter, not as some matter of general principle, what I've so far seen coming out of the Satanic Temple. Um, contrast that with the Satanic Temple's desire to place a statue of Bahamut on the uh, grounds of, uh, of, of, of a you know, state building where there are other statues. That seems to me you know, much harder for a court to get around and much easier to accept than so far what I've seen with respect to the reproductive rights claims of the Satanists. Yes. Um, how substantive due process-y do you think the marriage line actually is? So like if a state decided we're not doing marriage licenses at all, do you think the court would say, no, you must recognize marriage? Um, 
still not more about what it, what you mean by saying the court would not issue
Uh, now, part of that is a, uh, an accidental effect of what happened when the sex laws were reformed, so as to uh, remove a whole lot of, um, from the perspective of the late 20th century, old-fashioned sexual crimes, um, including, for example, consensual sodomy in many states. But it is legal in many states to have sex, but not to marry. Um, and with, you have sex with, but not to marry an adult to which you, to whom you are closely related. Um, and you know, put that in your calculus in, when you're asking what Martha Minow says is the quintessential lawyer's question, which one of these things is not like the others? That's a sweet <laughs> question. Um, yeah, which one of these things is doing its own thing? Is incest just next on the list? And also, what does it say about a group? that the law is prepared to tolerate the sex it's having but not tolerate its marriage, which was the case for uh, interracial couples, uh, loving, um, which was the case for uh, gay couples, until Obergefell, which is still the case for uh, incestuous couples. And you know, again, I have no prediction what would happen, or no prediction what should happen if I'm Scalia connecting the dots, if an adult incest case comes before the court. I mean, I suspect that the court would be less sympathetic, but connecting the dots, I'm not sure it should be. Connecting all the dots, including um, to the extent that this is a, that substantive due process is a process of counting what the rest of the states do and tolerate having done. Again, adult incest is not everywhere criminalized. Yeah. <clears throat> I know the specter that often gets raised after Obergefell and gay marriage is, is polygamy next. Yep. Um, so I'm wondering, I guess, if we're headed in the direction of like marriage is the best thing ever. I mean, I have to say there were lots and lots of ways to avoid that, should the court have wanted to. Um, you know, almost any equal protection um, claim, not any, but uh, would have certainly sex discrimination. I've been arguing for, uh, again, since the 90s, that um, you know, sex discrimination is the way to go for same-sex marriage for all kinds of reasons. But one of them is that if you want to stop the slippery slide down the slippery slope through polygamy, which you may not, but if you do, that's a good way to do it because there is something, again, for reasons that should be familiar to every University of Chicago person. It's in my contract I have to use the words efficiency once in every talk. <laughs> because it's efficient, right? Um, what marriage does is it takes, as a default matter, two people and they go, I, you, and you, me, as the default person for all kinds of things, to inherit half my estate, to make my medical decisions. And you can still um, contract around that now in a way that you couldn't uh, you know, 100 or 200 years ago. Um, but that only works with two. With three, it's already, you know, so take the, the argument that worked best for the, for the gay couples, which is, you know, imagine one of you uh, is in a hospital bed um, and the other isn't even going to be admitted to see you, let alone uh, make medical decisions. Now imagine uh, polygamy, right? Uh, two spouses, one of them says all heroic measures, the other one says pull the plug. You are already not in the realm of default roles. You're in the realm of, I mean, you set default roles, but it isn't as simple as with two. So for efficiency reasons, setting the number of people in a marriage at two works. Setting it at more than two is harder to argue for. But in the aftermath of Obergefell, I see no reason why at least the Browns of Sister Wives fame, who are litigating simply not to be criminally prosecuted 
for their announcement of uh, polygamous intent. That is to say, they're not engaging in what's what the criminal law defines traditionally as bigamy. They're not the, the, the man in that relationship is not trying to get two marriage licenses, one for each of two of his four wives. He's got one marriage license at a time that he's simply announcing, and for religious reasons, that he is married to more than one woman. I, uh, I think he wins after Obergefell in a way that was more questionable before Obergefell. So I think um, Obergefell gave heart to polygamists who want um, state recognition for their marriages. Nothing but um, encouragement to them. Yeah. Well, insofar as sort of conflicting rights are inevitable, then isn't there, I mean, isn't there reason to believe that sort of the status quo that we've reached post Hobby Lobby is sort of exactly where we want to be in that basically the settlement that we've reached is we're going to dismantle all obstruct, you know, uh, all prohibitions on obtaining abortions or on obtaining contraceptives as in Roe and Griswold, but if, particularly if you have a religious objection, we're not going to require others to facilitate your pursuit of those freedoms. I mean, I don't see how we've reached that as a settlement. I mean, I think the last thing you can say about the aftermath of Hobby Lobby is that anything is settled. I mean, I'm not even clear that Hobby Lobby itself is settled, right? I mean, there are literally hundreds of cases, and I don't see how one settles them, right? I mean, you know... the middle of the slippery slope may very often be the right place to be for any given issue. I don't see how one claws a foothold in the middle of the slippery slope. Um, and pre-Hobby Hobby, we had reached a very different sort of settlement in that even specifically Catholic organizations had been providing contraception under uh, state uh, and local decisions to their employees without complaint. Uh, one of the things that happened in the aftermath uh, of Griswold is that the Catholic Church stepped back. The Catholic Church is now pressing forward and with company. Um, so just, again, in the same way as descriptively I said, I don't see what claim the satanic temple makes, but you can show me I'm wrong. Even more emphatically, I would say descriptively, the very last thing we have now is anything that can be described by anyone as a settlement. I'm not even going to get into whether it's a satisfactory settlement for anyone. It is simply not settled. And I come back to, it's not settled, and the only way to settle it, I think, is the way that Scalia set forth in Smith. Either the law applies to everyone, no exceptions, and where it goes, or there is anarchy. And if you consider anarchy a settlement, um, that's an interesting philosophical question. I think we're all out of time, so once again, thank you so much for coming. If you'll help me in thanking again Professor Marianne Case, as well as the American Constitution Society for, for sponsoring our event. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.